Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 12 of the Lawyerist Podcast a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds to give us a rating in iTunes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for you. They will also waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. Okay, Sam. So in the last few days, there have been a couple of interesting uh, announcements from Google about its search engines and algorithms and things. Uh, The first was mentioned by Kevin O'Keefe, which is that starting in April of this year, um, which is probably about the time this episode is going to go out, so it should really mm-hmm. be on the radar of everyone listening. They are going to start penalizing the rankings of sites that are not mobile responsive and not designed to display properly on mobile devices. Ooh, that's big. Yeah. Spe- I mean, so last week, in last week's podcast, we talked about how 40% of small firm lawyers don't have websites. Of the 60% who do, my best guess is the majority still have websites that can't be viewed well on mobile devices. Yeah, I mean, for the last two years in our annual Best Law Firm Website Design Contest, we have basically disqualified non-responsive websites. And that has meant that a lot of websites didn't make the cut based on that deal breaker. Um, So yeah, it's going to be a huge majority of lawyers are potentially going to be impacted by this. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing that we've, we've been ranking them that way for our Best Law Firm Websites Award because we think it provides a better experience for users. Google's taking it a step further and saying, if you don't adopt these standards, they're actually going to penalize your rankings. You're not going to rank as well for California bankruptcy lawyer or whatever it is you're trying to rank for. That seems to hit some folks in the pocketbook, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, and if, if you're groaning and saying, oh, we have to do this, think about it. I mean, if somebody hears about your law firm while they're out having drinks or coffee or just chatting with somebody, the first thing they're going to do is look you up on the first thing that they have, which is in their pockets, and it's going to be their phone. So pull out your phone, look at your website, and see how easy it is to navigate, and you'll kind of understand why Google is doing this. Because if your website isn't responsive, meaning it doesn't fold itself up to look nice on mobile, the people who visit your website from their pockets aren't seeing much, and it's not a good experience for them. So it's it's a user-focused thing, and it's it's a good thing, I think. But if if your marketing strategy involves your website, this could hurt. So I guess my piece of advice is if this applies to you, we have some free resources available on Lawyerist. If you go to lawyerist.com and click on the websites link at the very top of the header of the page, um, We have a free white paper you can download that talks about both mobile responsive design and other aspects of great website design um, and can give you some free tips on how to make your website better. Um, And if if you're looking at your website on your phone and you're going, oh man, we need to fix this, the website will help you understand what it is and what you need to be looking for 
when you go and try to find a designer and, and we can help you find the designer too. The, there's, we have an assessment that will follow and you can let us know what you're looking for and we'll, Aaron will help you find what you need. So. so then the other interesting news out from Google in the last few days is not an announcement of something they're doing yet. So this is not something anyone needs to worry about, but they have just announced some research projects into the concept of changing their search algorithm to be based on the truthfulness of the underlying documents rather than their current algorithm, which is mostly based on the link authority of interlinking of sites. Um, So I haven't seen this before. How are they deciding whether or not it is factually accurate? Uh, this is their like they've got computer scientists and data researchers and different people who've come up with some sort of tool i'm not sure how universally accurate it is i don't know how it works um this is like preliminary this is theoretical research at this point this is not a product announcement um but they have apparently started to crack the code of being able to analyze using uh software whether something is true or not. And and they've said that they're exploring whether it would be then possible to use that research to change the way their search engine results work. That's really cool. That'd be good to see too. I mean, if, if we can actually algorithmically figure out whether or not something's factually accurate, that's yeah. awesome. And that way, if your Google search is for a fact of something, in theory, once this is launched, then you'll just get the answer. Hmm, wow. So there you go. That's what I've got. Uh, Very cool. We'll post links for all of these things in the show notes for the podcast. Sounds great. Today, I'm interviewing Ellie Krug, a transgender woman and public interest lawyer who has litigated as both a man and a woman. And here's that interview. I'm here with Ellie Krug, who is a lawyer the executive director of a Minneapolis nonprofit, Call for Justice, and the author of Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change. And Ellie is a fascinating person, and so I'm going to let her introduce herself. Um, Ellie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, um, the, the very short bio is that um, I grew up in Iowa. Um, I attended uh, Co College in Cedar Rapids and then Boston College Law School, um, graduated in 1982, so long ago, um, and then started practicing law in Boston, um, where I learned to be a trial lawyer and received wonderful mentoring there. Then in uh, 1988, I moved back to Iowa. Um, uh, in 1996, I started my own law firm that specialized in trial work for the transportation industry. We're talking mainly railroads and trucking companies. Um, and I've, I, I should mention that on all of this, throughout all of that time, I was actually a man, um, and I was born, born male, and um, I had married um, my high school sweetheart, which makes all of this far more complicated. Um, and in, uh, so in 96, I started my own law firm, uh, continued to do that until um, my marriage um, ended uh, in 2004, continued to maintain the firm, and in 2009, I transitioned uh, genders from male to female. Um, that uh, ultimately caused um, 
major institutional clients of mine uh, to um, abandon me, walk away. And then um, I, in the March of 2010, closed my law firm and then moved to Minneapolis where I restarted my life. Um, first to uh, write a book. Thank you for very much for uh, mentioning my memoir. And then um, in November of 2011, I was hired to be the first executive director of Call for Justice, LLC, a small nonprofit that helps uh, low-income people connect with civil legal resources in the Twin Cities and greater Minnesota. Thank you. Um, I mean, you have you've lived a very interesting life already, and I want to talk about a couple of pieces of that. Uh, and if you're listening and, and you were, your interest was piqued by uh, anything that Ellie just said, you know, start with her book. Um, it's called Getting to Ellen. You can find it on Amazon. It's really a, a compelling story, very well written and very moving. Um, and, and this is not going to be a podcast that retreads that ground. Uh, what I want to talk to Ellie about today is, is about uh, your journey from uh, trial lawyer to a solo practitioner. And then I want to talk about the really fascinating, unique experience that you have had, which is litigating both as a man and as a woman and how it's been different on each side, you know, from your very unique perspective. So, um, you know, tell us about uh, how your journey to solo practice to start with. You were a trial lawyer when being a trial lawyer actually meant trying cases and not just once every few years, right? That's correct. So um, um, I started... uh right away um, doing advocacy work in uh, 1982 um, and I worked for a firm that uh, did medical malpractice defense and in Minnesota or excuse me in Massachusetts they had tribunals where if you filed a malpractice case you needed to then defend the case before a tribunal before it could go forward so I was doing a lot of work um, at the tribunal stage and then um, for uh, I was hired and then worked for nearly five years for a litigation firm where I was paired with two mentors, one who was a wonderful office lawyer, knew how to write letters, communicate with clients, and a good trial lawyer, Um, but the other who was a brilliant, we are talking with a capital B, um, trial lawyer, and uh, and horrible, that's with a capital H, office lawyer. (laughs) And it was that second mentor who taught me how to try cases. He... um, he only, Sam, he only knew how to ask leading questions. So um, when I found out that we were going to have our first trial, which was within, I think, a month of me starting the law, starting at that law firm, he said, um, you're going to do all the directs. <laughs> <laughs> and that included directs of experts. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so, so uh, I, I imagine it took you a while to acquire your nickname of Killer Krug, huh? That didn't happen your first year of law practice? Well, you know, no, it did not. But I will share with you, I vividly remember trying a case with uh, this partner in Cambridge, in Massachusetts. And it was a case involving, um, the dist- uh, there was a, a railroad uh, engine that had crashed into, just actually nicked a tank car filled with phosphorus trichloride. Hmm. And the Somerville Fire Department came to deal with the situation, and they poured water on the pool of phosphorus trichloride, which, um, uh, which is actually the opposite of what you're supposed to do with that because it caused a, a, a cloud of sulfuric acid to cover the entire 
city of Cambridge and Somerville and part of downtown Boston. So they had to evacuate all of that. And the railroad got sued. Um, and I remember in you know one of my early cross-examinations of now, I, actually, this was a cross-examination of their expert because I then progressed to cross, um, and uh, he was a, a professor from Harvard. He talked about how they had tested this phosphorus trichloride, about how dangerous it was, and and then I I asked him about what do they do with the what the with the gas after they're done using it, and he said, well, we we put it in our vents you know, in our lab at Harvard. He was a Harvard prof. <laughs> and I said, okay, and where do those vents go? He said, they go outside. And I said, you mean like on the day of the incident where the phosphorus trichloride, then sulfuric acid just went into the sky? And he's like, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so afterwards, the judge came, uh, pulled uh, this partner, his name was Fercolo, and me over, and he said, you know what? You're like Batman and Robin. One of you hits them high and the other of you hits them low. Sam, at this point, I am a three-year-out associate. I, um, I imagine that was, you just were feeling great about that. It was. It was. It was great empowerment. Awesome. And so at, at some point, you left Boston and moved to Iowa, and you decided to start your own firm. And uh, I remember reading some about this in the book, but... I, I suspect that starting a firm in uh, in the 90s was a little bit different than starting it today. So what, I mean, what was the hardest part about starting your firm? And what was the easiest part, I guess? Well, certainly the hardest part was the risk. You know, in um, the 90s in Iowa, uh, lawyers could barely advertise in the yellow pages. I remember a lawyer being disciplined for having put his name on one of those advertisements that you would have, you know, at the movie theater, that you'd be sitting waiting for the, you know, the movie to come up. And he had just listed his name along with other kinds of advertisers. The Iowa Supreme Court disciplined him for that. Wow. Okay. And so so the, the risk for me was to go and spend what amounted to $70,000. And Sam, by the way, this is a time when, you know, laptops, you know, you know, remember um, Gateway? Mm -hmm. um, laptops cost $4,000, all right? Um, I just vividly remember spending $70,000 and not knowing if I would be able to attract the business to justify that huge, huge risk that I just put myself and my family through. Wow. You know, I've written a post about how to start a law practice for under $3,000, and that's you know that that title is a little bit provocative because it probably costs more, but not seventy. Wow, seventy thousand dollars is a huge investment. Right, but I don't think that that you know. I mean, I I I knew that I was going to attract um, institutional clients, so I had nice space in a. Um, I had to build out a space in an off in a old um, carriage factory in downtown. Cedar Rapids that they were rehabbing into offices. Mm -hmm. I had wonderful wooden beams and wonderful brick walls. Um, but, you know, um, if you're going to attract a certain type of client, you have to have office space for them that makes them feel comfortable and generates confidence. Mm -hmm. by, by all means, today, yes, I could go out and start a $3,000 law firm, but that law firm would not attract the type of institutional clients that I wanted to attract. Even today, I don't think they would go for that. Oh, no, I think you're right. And that's when I say my post title is a little provocative. I hope that I made that clear to people. There's there's a lot more to it than just 
uh, opening up your laptop and buying a, a laser printer, um, which I suppose you probably could have done back then if you really if you really were trying to cut costs, right? Yeah, but that probably would have still cost me about ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Wow. And and uh, your law practice was de- you were defending railroad companies primarily, right? Railroads and trucking companies, yes. And I had the kind of practice where um, I would get called out to accident scenes, um, literally as this, uh, literally while the rescue personnel were still at the scene. I, re- I actually remember being called out to a truck accident case where the body was still in in the car. Oh wow! So. Um, yes. And, so how do you attract you know, those institutional clients or, or how did you at that time? I mean, it's, uh, most, most solo and small firm lawyers, I think are mostly getting smaller clients. Yours sound like pretty big ones. And it seems like a big ask to get them to commit to a solo or very small firm like yours. Well, um, but, um, I had, uh, I had, you know, great, uh, pedigree. Um, you know, there weren't many lawyers who had practiced, had gone to law school in Boston and practiced in Boston and could say that they had represented fortune 100 companies while they were in Boston. And, and so in Iowa, you know, that attracted clients, you would get East coast clients that are looking for a lawyer. Um, I remember one, a major international reinsurer was looking for an attorney. They were getting conflicted out and when they found me um and knew i found out that i was from boston and had this background they were like oh my goodness we're so happy that we ultimately ended up with you plus you get to call your firm a boutique then right boutique yes that was actually cutting edge back then um (laughs) you know and um but really um it's no it was no different than than it is now you do good work you develop a reputation um, the word of mouth gets around, and lawyers respect you. And you know there are always lawyers who have conflicts. And certainly, if they have a conflict, they don't want to give someone, you know, a bad referral. I mean, because that'll reflect on them. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just develop relationships with lawyers who are very good lawyers. They respected me, and whenever they would conflict out, they would send the matter to me. And, and they also knew I wouldn't steal the client. That was really critical. I made it clear to them. I know this is one, one matter. And after this matter's done, you get the client back. I think that's pretty key. I, I, I still hear lawyers talking about that. Um, but as you know, I, I think it's maybe less of an issue because so many people have niche practices now. Um, although I suppose when it comes to conflicts, that's still relevant. But, uh, but yeah, being able to trust someone with your referrals and trust them not to steal your client is pretty key. Well, remember what we go back to. Um, you know, lawyers are a specialized bunch. We, we actually have to take an oath before we can do anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that, frankly, I think that that oath is inviolate. Um, I certainly know um, when I practiced uh, that it, I spoke many times about the oath and how we're different than Target. Nothing against Target, of course. And, um, you know, uh, 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 trust, is, trust is a fundamental element um, inherent in that oath. And that would be trust of your colleague, trust between you and the client, of course, but trust between you and the courts and trust between you and your colleagues. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Does it sound like I miss it? <laughs> <laughs> you, you seem a little wistful. Do you miss it? <laughs> um, you know, uh, 
I gave a talk uh, yesterday down in um, Rochester, um, which was a talk entitled uh, Transgender 101, colon, um, how, um, wel welcoming um, transgender lawyers, clients, and uh, witnesses. And at the end of the talk, um, a man in the front of the audience who was, I would have guessed, maybe 65 and who throughout much of my talk looked awfully bored, mm -hmm. um, came up to me. And he was anything but bored. It's the old rule about jurors. You can never tell what a juror is thinking, you know. <laughs> and yeah. he came up to me and he said, um, he said, you know, with 10 minutes in, I could tell that you had been a trial lawyer. And his next statement was, you should go back to it. <laughs> Not because I'm a good, bad speaker, but because he knew I was passionate and I, I apparently do it well. So, yeah, I am wistful for it at times, yeah. for sure. So um, that that almost makes a perfect segue, but I want to stop myself from segueing and ask you one last question about your solo practice, which is how how did you gauge its success? I mean, I, I assume you considered it successful because you did it for 23 years, I think, if my math is right. So um, how how do you look back and say, yes, I had a successful practice? What are the, the hallmarks of that for you? Oh, wow. Um, many things, I guess. First and foremost would be um, the reputation that I had built. And that reputation was, first of all, yes, I was very tough. Um, and aggressive, but I was also known that when I gave my word that you could trust my word. And we all know from our you know, from the profession that there are lawyers that you cannot trust. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was probably the most important. Secondly, you know, um, I, I'm pretty good with dollars and with um, leveraging. And so for several of those years, no, I'm going to say, you know, maybe for a good 10 years, I had leveraged it such um, that all the revenue producers in my office paid for the bills in the firm, hmm. paid for their salaries, paid for their overhead, you know, paid for my overhead, and that every dollar that I billed um, was a dollar that I collected for me. So, you know, you, so we hear, you know, what's your overhead? Well, it's 50%. So that means. 50 cents of every dollar that you bring in that you have billed goes to somebody else. For me, for many years, 100 cents of every dollar I billed was coming to me. So wow. I would say that that was probably a good, at least capitalistic marker, for lack of mm -hmm. a better phrase. Um, but also, we did good work. You know, um, we, were, we were good advocates. Um, we, I made law in Iowa. Um, certainly as it related to grade crossings in Iowa, I had the seminal case that essentially established that federal preemption applied in Iowa and that if any kind of grade crossing protection was purchased with federal dollars, that the grade crossing claim of the, of the injured party um, would be um, preempted and they would not have a claim. Hmm. Now, I say all that with some amount of pride because that was a very critical issue for the railroad industry from which I had many clients. On the other hand, uh, you're right, I had some issues later on um, as it related to, um, um, you know, taking on people who, many of whom had suffered catastrophic life-changing injuries. And, um, you know, um, many times um, I heard in closing arguments, uh, Krug is blaming the victim here. And, you know, many times that was absolutely true. So. And how, I mean, how do you how do you decide how to think about that or how to feel about that looking backwards? 
well, looking backwards, um, I was I did what I was supposed to do, and that would be a very good advocate. Mm-hmm. The reality is is that most accidents that are caused, you know, in the country, are a combination of fault. Right. It is very rare, very very rare, that the accident is the fault of one person. Yes, the truck driver who falls asleep and rear-ends you on the highway while you're going 60 miles an hour, yes, that would not be your fault, (laughs) all right? However, um, for every one of those, there are 10 others where, you know, the plaintiff did something to cause the accident, if not completely caused the accident, and the defendant ended up being, you know, the victim of circumstances. And I defended a lot of those cases where we were simply the victim of circumstances that we had nothing to do with. Um, So I look back and I'm okay with most of all all that I did, but I'm human. And eventually, as you know from my book, um, it started to catch up with me. And, you know, um, part of that was about being female, um, you know, between my ears. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it was about... You know, I've had so many years in of, and, and litigation, by the way, is a young person sport. Do you get that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, absolutely. You know, with the long hours and the stress. So um, then, of course, my life changed. So. Well, and let's, that, you, you gave me the perfect segue, so let's segue. Um, I was was fascinated in your book to learn that you, you, uh, you obviously, some of your clients were not very forgiving of your decision to change your gender, uh, but some were uh, and kept you on. And I, I'd like to hear more about that, both because I think it's an interesting story and uh, because I think uh, it's it provide you are able to give us some pretty interesting insight into the what it's like to be a woman in the legal profession because you didn't start out that way. And, and you were a particularly hard-nosed man as a litigator as well, it sounds like. So, so I was. tell me about that. Tell me about the trial. Maybe that's the best window. Um, the trial, the case that you tried as a woman. Maybe tell me about that first. Sure. So just uh, to regroup and get our perspective here, in um, May of 2009, um, after a client actually called me out, because I always was wearing mascara, I, I know. Um, I shouldn't have been doing that, but I was. Um, and asked um, if I was wearing women's eye makeup. That occurred on a Thursday. And by Monday of the following week, I had sent out um, 200 letters to lawyers, clients, and judges saying, um, I'm really a woman, I'm not a man, and from here on out, my name will be Ellen, and um, a little bit about what it meant to be transgender. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, that was May of 2009. I had a husband and wife being sued in Cedar Rapids over the sale of a very high-end house. The claim was that they had fraudulently failed to disclose that the windowsills in this house were rotting. And uh, my clients told me we're air conditioner people. We just never opened the windows. And on top of that, the buyers had had a home inspection, and the home inspector never found um, a problem with the windows. But nonetheless... My clients were being sued, no insurance money, and it was $100,000 of their money at stake, including attorney's fees. And so um, they had hired me as a man. Um, I came out as Ellen. I gave them the op- I brought them into the office. They said, we have a trial in two months. Um, you know, 
you can go get another lawyer. There is no judge that won't give you a continuance. Mm-hmm. And um, the they asked, um, they said that they wanted me to still try the case. I offered to try it as a man because I take my oath, as I've said already, um, very seriously. And the, I'll never forget this, Sam. The wife looked at me and she said, would you be comfortable trying the case as a man? And at that point I had said, you know, I'm not going to lie anymore about anything relating to me. And I said, no, I wouldn't be comfortable. She looked at her husband, looked back at me, and she said, that settles it. You'll try it as Ellen Krug. Hmm. Wow. So in July of 2009, um, we went to trial. And um, uh, on the morning of, um, you know, that we started the trial, the judge had us back in the chambers. We did pretrial motions. And then he got done. And he said, okay. Are there any, is there anything else that you want to bring to my attention before we go out and start to pick the jury? And I said, well, Your Honor, yes. Um, I said, you know, this is a case that's a fraud case against my clients. Um, I'm going to try the case. I had a young associate I was bringing along who was going to do part of it, but I was primary lawyer. And I said, Your Honor, um, I'd like to tell the jury I'm transgender because I look, well, I look very female. I don't sound it. And I don't want the jury believing or thinking that not only are my clients frauds, but so is their lawyer. And the judge leaned back in his chair and looked up. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, Sam. He looked up at the ceiling. And, and I write about it in my book, like <laughs> Solomon. You know, and after about 30 seconds, he comes back down to earth. And he looked at me and he said, I don't have a problem with that. That's all right with me. And you know, Sam, all mm-hmm. of the background is this, is that lawyers aren't supposed to share intimate details about themselves <laughs> with the jury. Right. And so then he turned to a plaintiff's counsel, a man um, that I had tried several cases with and beat each time. I'm, I just had to say that. And, <laughs> you got to um, throw that in there. <laughs> and um, he said, uh, you know, uh, Bill Jones or whatever um, the name was that I utilized in the book, I used many pseudonyms. Um, mm-hmm. He said, what do you think of that? What do you think of of Ellen's request um, to tell the jury that she's transgender? And, you know, at that point, it was really a trick question for the other lawyer because, you know, if he had thought like a man, you know, he would be be thinking, well, my God, I absolutely want this person to tell the jury that she used to be a man and now that she's a woman because he would think that the jury would think I'm crazy, Mm -hmm. all right? And, of course, he would think that he would win. But if he thought like a woman, um, there would be no way he would have ever agreed to that because he would have realized that me standing up in front of the jury, explaining to them, particularly to women, that I had gone through this challenge in life and that now I stood before them as this person with this very deep voice but feminine looking they, the women, the women in particular would understand I was extremely vulnerable. And women, if there's nothing else that I've learned from trial practice, is that they trust vulnerability. They identify with it. They respect it. They, um, they trust it, and they will favor it. Mm-hmm. And so Bill Jones looked over at the judge after a few seconds of trying to decide. He said, no, that's okay. Ellen, you know, she can tell the jury that she's transgender. And at that moment, Sam... I was pretty certain I had that case won. Hmm. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> Four days later. Wow. So, did you, you know, ever get a chance I, to talk to the jurors in that case? 
We did. We did. I absolutely, particularly, I mean, my practice was always to poll the jury. And in Iowa, lawyers are allowed to do that. Of course, with the proviso that, you know, they tell the jurors they don't have to speak with them. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, I, you know, we asked the jury, did my status as a trans woman, transgender female, make any difference to them? And the answer back was no. And the second question was, well, was there any discussion about it in your, the jury room? And the answer back was yes. It only came up once. A male juror referred to attorney Krug as he, and the female juror corrected him and said, no, it's she. Well, that restores a little of my faith in humanity, doesn't it? <laughs> well, when you think that this was Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 2009, yes. <laughs> you know, that it's funny because 2009 doesn't feel that long ago, but... Um... But boy, so much has changed. Well, and you know, and it d didn't hurt, of course, that the Iowa Supreme Court earlier that spring had decided the Varnum decision in which the court unanimously declared that uh, Iowa, the Iowa Constitution, that it was unconstitutional to prevent um, same-sex couples from marrying. Mm -hmm. Hmm. The Supreme Court, three of those justices later paid for that decision, but nonetheless. Um, and I'm proud to say that, you know, Iowa was second to Massachusetts on that. And, mm -hmm. you know, Iowa... And you, you have know, roots in both states. Yes. <laughs> Did you know? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So you've had some, you had some other experiences litigating as a woman. Uh, uh, I think I remember from your book talking about uh, uh, you talking about taking a deposition with a bunch of other lawyers. Yes. What happened there? Well, you know, I mean, I think that when you're, when you're a man that you just absolutely, you know, don't even pay attention to things because you're so used to having the privilege and things working the way they're supposed to. I mean, for a man, the way they're supposed to is that the man gets to lead and the man gets to dictate the, the agenda and, you know, women have to be in the background. I, you know, I just said that with a very broad brush, of course. But, well, you, you, know, you, it, you kind of get to say things like that, too, because you've been on both sides. So you're pointing oh, the finger at yourself, too. Thanks for giving me that license. <laughs> um, but I remember on, you know, on, at, at this uh, deposition that um, whereas I, when I was a man, would always, so it was multiple lawyers, and it was a truck accident. So we're talking, I think, four different lawyers. And my, it was, um, my client happened to be there, um, who was a trucker, but it wasn't my client's deposition. Um, but I remember um, that the um, other, you know, other lawyers just, just automatically knew that, decided that they were going to go before me and that I would be the last one to ask questions, which was totally and contrary different to the way it had been before, because I was always the one leading the questions. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how and, did you handle that? Did you say anything or did you just sort of go, huh? No, I did what women do. I went, huh, you know, mm. and, you know, you have to understand this is early on. Actually, all of these lawyers had known me as a man before that. Okay. So this was not like I'm coming in. This is a case in which I transitioned while I was on the case. And so I literally went from being the one who had led things to being the one that followed everything. And I don't think that had to do because of my transition. I had to do. I think it had a lot had everything to do with me showing up in a skirt. Now, that's discouraging. Does it? Does that discourage you? It discourages me. I have two little girls, and that discourages me. 
No, no, come on, Sam. We have to remember, this is 2009. No, no, things have changed. They have, well, things for transgender people have changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. Things for women in general, no. We have a Congress that is still trying to tell women what to do with their bodies. Right. I mean, without, you know, without having any idea that, you know, that they're, you know, that they're trying to be in control, you know? Have you, I mean... Have you gained any sort of? Uh, I, you didn't practice for long as a woman, right? Was it just a couple of years? No, I'm not. No, well, that's not true. Yes, I. The last case that I ever handled was the last time I was ever in a courtroom. Sam was the Iowa Supreme Court, where I argued a case in September of 2011, and so, um, and in that case. Um, I believe I am the very first transgender, openly transgender person to appear before the Iowa Supreme Court. Hmm. So based on those couple of years litigating uh, as a woman after litigating as a man for so many years, I mean, are you able to draw any insight into, into for, that would help um, a man appreciate um, what, it's, what it's like to be on the other side of the gender spectrum? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, men have to understand this vulnerability thing. You know, I think that many men don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to put themselves in positions where uh, they have to be honest about something or authentic about something because that's too scary or that is just not in keeping with what a man does. Okay, I just put quotation marks around that statement. And... Um, the reality is, is that many jurors, male and female, but particularly female jurors, as I've said, really appreciate vulnerability. The other thing is, is that many men don't understand that they're very sexist when, when they do things. You know, um, certainly by, and, and when I was a man, I got called out on this, you know, trying to approach a witness on the stand, particularly women witnesses. More than once, I remember somebody saying, will you, you know, get him, referring to me when I was a man, away from the witness, Your Honor. You know, and, and I think when women jurors pick up on that, particularly if it's a woman witness on the stand, but they pick up on it regardless because you have a lawyer trying to take advantage, a lawyer, a male, trying to take advantage of another human, and that women don't like that. Women are protectors. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so. Um, and it sounds I, a little bit of sort of just being aware of your privilege. As a man, you didn't realize that you were intimidating the witness because you lacked the awareness, I guess. I well, no, I knew I was. Or you're doing on purpose. I knew I was intimidating <laughs> the witness. I just didn't appreciate what effect it was having on female jurors in particular. I see. So, um, but you know, I, I learned a lot of you know lessons along the way. I mean, for example, how. You know, we're back to rooms filled with men and women. Men just do seem to think that they're going to take charge right away. And, you know, when a man speaks, um, you know, people pay attention. When a woman speaks, you can noticeably watch how that attention starts to fade away. Again, that was very broad-brushed, but, but I just challenge your listeners to just sit back in settings and watch how the dynamics work. You are so. I'm gonna I'm gonna segue again into what you're doing now, because um, I'd like to recognize that you have been recognized very recently for your work at Call for Justice. 
the ABA just awarded you the Lewis M. Brown Award for the delivery of legal services because of what Call for Justice is doing. Can you explain a little bit about how that came about? Yes, thank you. Um, so Call for Justice is three years old. It is a nonprofit that I was hired to begin, to start, and, I, and literally I did that. I walked into a very empty office with nothing other than a laptop. I didn't even have a chair. I had to bring a folding chair from home. But not a $4,000 laptop. Not a $4,000. No, no. It was, <laughs> I think it was a $700 laptop. Thank you. And um, what we do is we work uh, to make the system more responsive so that it helps low-income people connect with civil legal resources. The ABA in particular recognized us for our work with 211, which is information and referral. So, you know, 911 is for the police. 411 is for the government, 311 is something else. 211 is information and referral. And in Minnesota, the largest 211 handles 30,000 plus legal referral calls a year. That makes them the largest legal referral agent. And many where do those, those referrals go to? Well, back before we started, many of them were going to two places, the Volunteer Lawyers Network or Legal Aid. And people were getting, you know, they were getting bounced around because those organizations um, at that time and continue today turn away two people for every one that they take. And so we were hired, teach them about the difference between criminal and civil. They didn't understand that. Um, teach them about immigration law and what resources exist for that, what resources exist, exist for bankruptcy, what legal resources exist for family law, down the line. And to the point now where um, our training has um, resulted in, I think we're up to 19 training videos that are on our website at www.callforjustice.org. Um, and those uh, videos are being viewed at the rate of, again, 30,000 views a year. So my nonprofit can say that legitimately it touches and affects the legal uh, needs of 60,000 people a year. That's not bad for a nonprofit that has two people to it and is barely three years old. Oh, that's great. Well, Ali, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you are interested in, to our, to our listeners, if you are interested in buying Ellie's book, Getting to Ellen, we'll make sure and include the link in the show notes. Oh, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate that. I appreciate anyone who buys my book. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings, it's an interruption, kind of drives me crazy and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning 
the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. Catch us next week for episode 13 when we talk with Keith Lee, the author of The Marble and the Sculptor, From Law School to Law Practice, a really excellent guide for newer lawyers trying to figure out how to become great lawyers. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.